Yo, thank you, band. Um, one's hesitant to even preach sometimes. Feel like it might be an interruption um, to what God is showing. Yeah, the communion that God is having with people, you feel maybe, I feel like I'm going to interrupt it, but I'll just pray that, that this would be a continuation of, of that. Um, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing. May the things I speak this morning not be an interruption or a distraction to, to the fellowship that you're having with each one of us. And just this, the salvation that you're pouring out and washing out over each of us with, Lord. It's good to have everyone here. The wind has blown more people in, I see. All of us are utterly windswept this morning. Um, I think all of you know me, but my name is Matthew, if you don't. Um, uh, I'm preaching this month through John 4, as I mentioned last week. I'm briefly going to mention it for those who didn't know. It's probably the last time I'll be preaching um, here for a while. Uh, I announced last week that my family, Sarah, Levi, and I are taking a sabbatical next year. We believe the Lord led us to take a sabbatical. Um, what I didn't mention last week is that it's not in Cape Town. So we're actually going to be in the Eastern Cape for at least a year, we think. We don't know exactly what the Lord will lead us into from there, but we felt Him lead us into sabbatical, and then let's see what happens. So that's just so you know. Um, you're not surprised when I'm not here next year. Um, but lots of weeks to come before that happens, and here we are today, looking at John 4, worship. Okay, so, as I mentioned last week, very briefly, taking a walk through John 4. John 4, as a portion of Scripture, is very conversational in nature. One thing sort of leads to another as Jesus converses with the woman at the well. And so, you're not necessarily going to get five bullets, bam, 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 for how to do X in your life after this. Um, I'm not very good at that kind of preaching. I'm not going to try and do that now, <clears throat> but I think John 4 itself is conversational in nature, and as you talk through it, things get revealed the same way that as Jesus just conversed with the woman, eventually she said, could this be the Messiah? After he'd spoken it to her from various angles, eventually she started to see something of Jesus. Um, so last week we looked at the living water. I'm going to give a very quick summary of that now. Today we're looking at worship. Next week, we're going to look at heaven, new heavens and the new earth. Can everyone hear me? Is this fine, this distance? Okay. All right. So before we get into it, let's read the scripture. Um, I don't have slides again. Last week, I'm going old school. You can just listen to me read the scriptures, or you can follow in your Bibles if you like, but I'm reading through the ESV version of John 4, starting from the start. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Before I carry on there, last week we just briefly looked at the fact that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. The words had to carry something of a divine unction. He, he, there was possibly a purpose that he felt God had for him there, but it was also the shortest route to Galilee. Jesus was going to Galilee from Jerusalem. The quickest way was actually through Samaria, but the strict Jews rather walked 40 kilometers extra crossing a river to walk on the other side all the way around so that they might not be defiled by the filthy Samaritans in their eyes. Okay. So he had to pass through Samaria. Then he comes to the well, and Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey. I would love to unpack it now, but I don't have a lot of time. But last week we looked at the, the nature that Jesus took on when he was man. Scripture says he was made like us in every way. He experienced hunger, thirst, exhaustion, sadness, loneliness, all of those things, and Really, the crux of what we said last week was that we would do well to meditate upon that because we have a, a funny picture of Jesus sometimes as the alpha male, good at everything, best at everything, yet somehow also super humble, super meek. It's an odd picture. It's not a biblical picture of Jesus, okay? Isaiah says there was nothing in him that made us desire 
his appearance. He wasn't like the leader walking in, you know. God was working through him everywhere he went, but there was nothing in his physical appearance or his physical capabilities that made him the man of the hour. Okay, it was God working through him. And many of the weaknesses that we carry are just part of your life, right? If you get tired, it's because you're a human. It's okay. It's not because you're a worthless Christian. Sometimes you can rest. Jesus himself, wearied as he was. His disciples were still at enough Vuma to go into town and buy food. Jesus said, hang on, guys. I'm just going to sit here and, and, and rest up a bit. Okay? That's okay. We must consider that um, humanity because that's what makes him a faithful high priest, able to sympathize and empathize with our weaknesses. He's not a hard taskmaster who's the best at everything pointing out all your failures. He empathizes, sympathizes, knows our weakness. Um, and sometimes our, our disappointment with ourselves all the time is because we've got like a, an odd picture of ourselves often. We've got a conceited opinion of what we should be capable of. I've been working this long, I should have achieved this. Or I've been a Christian this long, I should have at least been able to be like this. Or, and Maybe not a problem of low self-esteem, but possibly esteeming ourselves too highly. Too much confidence in the flesh. Too much confidence of what we have and what we can do of our own strength. And I said last week that um, when we talk about denying ourselves in Scripture, um, we apt to think of it primarily in our desires. Deny my desire to, I don't know, be a glutton at this meal or whatever it is, or temptations. But really, I think the biggest part of it, I think, or maybe we don't, yeah, we don't have to go into ratios, but a big part of it is denying your flesh's capability. We think of carnality as walking sinfully, but relying on your flesh to bring about kingdom reality is carnality. It's the same carnality. Okay, so our flesh is weak. It's utterly weak. And we should put no confidence in the flesh. <clears throat> All right, we carry on. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So John, you'll notice when you read the text, there are a couple of phrases in brackets all the time. John is just clarifying to the readers why this woman is so surprised. I mean, Jesus didn't ask for anything crazy. He just said, I'm quite thirsty. Can you give me a drink? This, is, this undoes her world. This is entirely out of line with custom and tradition. We gave a brief history of the Samaritans last week, and I'm, I'm going to touch on that again because it's relevant to the rest of our text. But in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings 17, there's a story of how when the Israelites went into exile, they were taken out of Jerusalem, um, were taken out of their holy land, to Babylon and Assyria and all the places. Then the king of Assyria repopulated the city with people from Babylon, Assyria, Cush, all sorts of other pagan nations were sent back. And then there's this very interesting story where it says the people started getting attacked by lions. And they said, we don't know the law of the God of this land. Okay, in their pagan frame of mind, that's how they understood it. But Really, they were having a hard time there. They, didn't, they were like transgressing all of God, the one true God's ways. Okay, and lions were there and eating them. And they said, we don't know the laws of the God of the land. So the king of Assyria says, okay, I will send a priest, one of the priests, these Jewish priests that used to live there. He can surely explain to the people the God of the land. So he goes back and I assume takes a couple of people with him. And then he starts to teach these nations about God. So presumably he had the law and said, you know, in this system, this is how atonement works and so on and so on. And then the line stopped devouring the people. But it, the account in two kings there is that these people, so they served the Lord, they feared the Lord God, the one true God, but also their other gods. They were pagans that had come from Babylon. So they worshiped their Baal and their Molech and their whoever and the Lord. So scripture says that they had this mixed up worship and so did their children and their children's children and that was passed down. Okay, so that is why the Jews saw the Samaritans as unclean 
Because to all intents and purposes, they were. They weren't actually Jewish. They were kind of half Jewish, half Gentile, half whatever else. And their expression of worship was also super mixed. Um, so the Jews would have no dealings with Samaritans. They wouldn't even walk through Samaria, let alone ask a Jewish, a Samaritan woman to give them a drink. Okay. That is why this woman is freaked out by Jesus' request. Then Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, part of the confusion is that the words living water can mean spring water. So I think that's possibly why the woman is confused. She thinks Jesus is talking about the well. Jesus is alluding to something else. And last week we looked at the living water. Um, and we saw that the living water is the Holy Spirit. Okay. Very, very important for us to make that connection. I myself for a long time see words of living water, uh, never thirst, uh, some sort of sublime spirituality where I'm feeling good and blessed and and this is living water, and if I pray more, I will feel the satisfaction more. If I serve more, I'll feel the satisfaction more. The living water is the Holy Spirit, okay? The third person of the Trinity, God himself. How do we know this? Only a few chapters uh, later in John's Gospel, 7 verses 37 to 39, it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, something's going to happen in your heart, living waters will flow out there. John, in his gospel, clarifies and says, now this he said about good spiritual practices, grace, blessedness. No, this he said about the spirit. The spirit is the living water whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The living water is the Holy Spirit dwelling within the believer. We see also in Jeremiah 2 verse 13, God is prophesying through Jeremiah to the people and saying, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Chapter 17, verse 13, the Lord, the fountain of living water. So God himself describes himself as the fountain of living water. Okay, so I just want us to be, to be there can be clarity in our hearts and our minds. It's not some strange, new agey, like Eastern, Buddhist, Hinduish, Nirvana, or whatever. You know, the thing is, Many religions work like that, and it makes sense to us to think like that. It's a very human way to think. But it's actually quite radical that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. It's very, very cool. Maybe for 10 seconds we can just imagine that, that the third person of the Trinity, God himself, dwells in your body. Not your future body, some future reality. In your body now as it is, in its wrinkles and... Uh, infirmity, weakness, leg injury, whatever it is, he dwells in your body. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> so Jesus is talking about the realities of the Spirit living in you. And what's important in these texts which we see here, there's... Um, what you can see from John's text is he's saying at the point at which Jesus was talking about these things, something still had to happen. But when he's telling the story to his churches, that thing had already happened. Okay, so it's important for us to just keep that in mind. I'll flesh it out a little bit later. But the Holy Spirit is God. He is a person, personality, 
person as much as the son and the father are, right? We don't think of the father as vague or Jesus as vague, but we sometimes think of the Holy Spirit as an unknown power that moves in sometimes when we do everything right and power comes and then he goes away. We don't really understand him. We sort of sometimes think we experience him. No, he's a person of the Trinity, the third person, as much as a person as the son and the father. That's why God says, let us make man in our image, father, son, and spirit. Something interesting we looked at last week was how the three work together. We saw that the Father has authorship or planning power, the Son has arranging or executive power, and the Holy Spirit has the power to complete and effect all of that. So if you look at creation, it says the Holy Spirit was brooding over the waters. He was rare, he was ready. Then it says, and God said, so you can think of it as the Father willed light to be, Jesus, who is the Word of God, said, light be, and then the Holy Spirit made light. He brought that into effect. He, he, he manifests the Father's creative desire, enacts the Father's creative desire. <clears throat> Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. He's given to us. The gift of God is the Holy Spirit. And it's for us to have that relationship with him. And then we will never thirst. Now, Matthew Henry commentary makes a, a useful point between a desiring thirst and a despairing thirst, okay? There's like this despairing thirst where nothing, you're just at a loss, okay? I think saying that the Holy Spirit will be in you and you'll never thirst is not to say that you will always feel, always be buzzing, like on the highest levels of spirituality. I don't think it's meant to denote that. Okay, but that despair, that despair that we get from trying to live holy in our own flesh um, will be quenched. Right, so let's move on to the next portion. How are we doing for time? Okay, so she says, sir, give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty. I have to come here to draw water. She's still not really getting it. So Jesus takes a different approach. He says, okay, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. What we see here is the gentleness of Jesus. So if you, if you want to think of this as Jesus evangelizing this woman, he's successful. Ultimately, she goes back, she ultimately sees who he is, goes back to the town, tells everyone, she becomes a believer. She gets that water that he was talking about. Um, but how, how is Jesus successful? And I think there's something worthy of seeing here. He doesn't come, thou defiled Samaritan who has defiled our worship. Thou art adulterous, and I will not speak with you, or I will crush you with my judgments. Okay? We like to do that. That's not how Jesus does it. He's very patient with her. I mean, can you imagine he's coming to a village that worships him, but also worships Baal and whoever. Like the worship is super defiled. This woman's also living in adultery. God himself actually sees fit to talk with her and not like just squash her with his wrath. Like the grace of God his patience and his mercy, his gentleness shines through in this passage of scripture. And he's, you can see he's getting through to the woman. She's starting to feel a little bit, uh-oh, this guy actually, she tried to say, I have no husband. Leave it there. No, yeah, you're right, you have no husband. I know that this is actually what's going on in your life. In all his gentleness, the woman's starting to get uncomfortable. You sense her maybe trying to change tack here, change the subject. Woman says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Wow. So then she turns into, asks a religious question. Um, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. When she's saying our fathers... um, we can see early in the, in the passage, she also says that, our father Jacob. So she still identifies with uh, the original Israelite fathers, Abraham, Jacob. So the Jews also obviously identify with that. So she's like saying, we have a commonality here. 
Uh, and actually, Jesus, our fathers worshipped here, so why do you guys worship down there? Um, so the Samaritans had set up their own temple. The Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. The Samaritans had set up a temple on Mount Gerizim, and which was near to where Abraham and Jacob themselves had both constructed altars. So that's why she said, our fathers worshipped here. Where did you Jews get the idea that Jerusalem is the place? I don't know what she's hoping to achieve out of the conversation, maybe just a distraction, but Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Again, Jesus is starting to reveal something um, that's coming. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So there we can understand that the Samaritans had a, they didn't know who they were worshiping, really. They only, had, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They had that, and then the rest they sort of filled in their own blanks. Didn't have the prophets and, and that full, clear revelation that God was giving through his prophets and, and his priests. They didn't have that. So that's why Jesus says, you worship what you don't know. They had a limited revelation of who God was, and it was very mixed. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But, again, nevertheless, an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, seemingly confused. I know that Messiah is coming and who is called Christ and he, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. So to this, this morning, we're already touching on spirit and truth worship, right? We sang about it this morning. We're quite familiar with the phrase, what is spirit and truth worship? Two fast songs and three slow songs. Is it head and heart? Is it doctrine and devotion? Well, it's definitely not two fast and three slow songs. The, the, the head and heart doctrine and devotion comes close, but God is actually talking about something here. And again, he's, he's pointing to the fulfillment of what the prophets have been prophesying all through the Old Testament history. They've been saying, God says, I will make a new covenant. I will be with man. I will dwell with him. I will write my laws on their hearts. I will... I will, I will be in them to move them to follow my decrees. Okay? All through the Old Testament, we point to this future reality, a future way of life with God, for lack of a better word. Old Testament, there was lots of laws and rules, and the Israelites could relate to God and know Him, but it was a very structured and had a very certain way of working. Those prophets all keep pointing to a new day, a new day. And it's this new day that Jesus is starting to unfold. He's saying, there's a time coming, whether you are unclean or, or whatever, whether you, you know, ceremonially unclean or you worship here or you worship there, it's going to fall away. It's all going to fall away. And the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so again, in spirit, I believe he's He's linking back to the living water. He's saying worship now will be not confined to a temple or a place. The living water is going to take up residence in the hearts of believers. And whether they're on their own or when they're gathered, that's where worship is. That's, that's where relationship with God is. And we might take that for granted, but I don't want us to take that for granted. Because it wasn't always like that. Very desperate. And all, all other religions still, still point to that old reality. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So, spirit, the hour is coming where the dwelling of God is in man. Man is the temple indwelt by God, as we already saw from Corinthians. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The former things fall away. God living in us is now where it's at in terms of relationship and worship. It's not the locations and the forms and the et cetera, et cetera, that the Jews and the Samaritans fought about. Um, so I'm going to unpack this a little bit more, but just quickly 
that's spirit. What about truth? I think there are a couple of things here. So Jesus already said, you, you worship what you do not know. So on the one hand, truth is about knowing who you worship, having a clear revelation of who God is when you worship him. So for the mixed Samaritan worship, not acceptable. Similarly, the, the hypocritical Jewish worship, which may have crossed all the T's and dotted the I's, but was full of corruption within, is as unacceptable. Okay, so the truth is about knowing truly and relating authentically. Okay, we see even in Old Testament times, many times the Israelites nailed the liturgy. So many things sacrificed there, a shout here, a praise song there. They were just, they were on it, perfect. God says, take, take away, take this away from me. I, I don't want to see this because you're stretching out to me hands that are full of blood. He says, let justice roll down like a river. So even in Old Testament times, God is not pleased with an outward form if the inward part is corrupt. Okay. So, let's make it a little bit more practical. How do we express spirit and truth worship? Now, as we said, the hour is coming and has now come where we're going to worship in spirit and truth. So how do we express worship in spirit and in truth today? So the outward forms of the Mosaic law have fallen away, but genuine outward expression has not the Father desires worshippers, expressing worship in spirit and in truth now. This is not for heaven one day, the hour has come and it is now. We are a living, breathing, moving, thinking, emoting person indwelt by the Spirit of God. So let's start with spirit. To worship in spirit now, that might seem obvious, but again, spirit is not talking about I don't think it's primarily talking about your heart. It's talking about the fact that the Spirit lives in you. Right? You can't worship in spirit if the Spirit's not dwelling in you. That's the baseline. Okay. So Jesus has already spoken about that. Believe, entrust yourself to Jesus and have his living water, the Spirit, in you, being born again. Jesus is the only way. And so we see from this any other acts of worship, however extravagant and glamorous, that are outside of the relationship of being born again unto God are not acceptable. God is not pleased, it won't especially um, commend yourself to him, or it's, nor is it recognized by him. He's the only way. You can only worship the Father in spirit if you have the spirit. Okay, and that, and again, remember what we said about the Holy Spirit last week? Not if you do lots of funny, charismatic actions, that's not what it's about, okay. The living water dwells in you. It's just a fact of being born again. So that's what it's saying. Jesus is in many ways saying, I'm the only way to the Father, just in a different way. Okay. It goes for the Samaritans as well as for the Jews. Jesus' mention of the Spirit here echoes his words about living water that he just previously spoke of. His writing is looking very small all of a sudden. Okay, as I said, new covenant, new dispensation, that theme runs throughout this passage of scriptures. The Jews and the Samaritans were both waiting for this new age to come. She says, one day Messiah will come and he'll explain all of this. So they're waiting for something new. They both know that the way worship is now, it's just not it. Something else is coming. Jesus is the fulfillment of that and he starts fulfilling that in his life on earth and ultimately by his death and resurrection, but also even after he had died and been resurrected, he said to the disciples, wait. Just wait. I'm going up. It's better for you that I go away, but I will send you another helper, the Holy Spirit, who will be with you and will be in you. Just hang on. He goes up, Holy Spirit comes. All of that is the fulfillment of the new covenant. Okay. So he's revealing it slowly, slowly, and then he and then we see it in the rest of Scripture. So if we worship in spirit, now to get practical, what does the body do? Can, is worship in spirit a 
mental exercise like you're just worshiping in spirit and your body is completely still, it can be, right? But your body's inhabited by the spirit. It is the temple itself. So from what we can see here is that the body should be in alignment with this worship in spirit and in truth and in union with the spirit. Worship, whether it's singing or whether it's doing your job or whether it's serving your neighbor, those are all acts of the body that are in union with the fact that the spirit is in you. Okay. It's not just about singing or sacrifices. The body can't be doing one thing, but somehow spiritually you are still worshiping. That's Paul's whole appeal to the Corinthians, isn't it? They were saying, oh, we're born again, and we, spirit is all good, but they sexually immoral, hanging out in brothels, doing all sorts of immoral things. Paul says, how can this be? How can this be that the body does one thing and the spirit does something else. No, 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 no. He says, these are, it's, it's like one integrated unit, your spirit and your body. So spiritual worship, worshiping in spirit, necessarily has an impact on what you do with your body. We can see clearly then that it's, it's in the outworkings of our lives, whether it's your parenting and your work or, or whatever it is as we say, the body and the spirit are in practical unison, eating, drinking, working, parenting, worship. And then I'll get to this next week, but intuitively we know worship's more than singing, right? We all kind of know that, even if we haven't fully worked it out for our own lives, how everything in our lives should be worship. But we know that what we sing on Sunday is not the only part of worship, right? Our obedience, our love to God, our serving our neighbors is all worship. So what about heaven one day? I don't want to be pushing too many buttons, but next week I'm going to unpack something that I think is important for us to think about. I, for a long time, thought that worship, ach, that heaven was one long sing-along. And as much as I love singing and <laughs> dancing and shouting and all the rest, be honest, eh? You like for eternity. Because <laughs> we know that we'll worship in heaven, right? Everyone knows heaven is about worship. We'll see God as He really is and we'll worship. But if worship on earth is more than singing, might it be that in heaven, worship, perfect worship, also be more than singing? And I'm going to un try and unpack the details of this next week because I, it, it is strange for us to, to think about sometimes um, if we've been schooled in a certain way of thought. <clears throat> Might it be that we would walk, eat, relate, work, and reign in heaven in similar ways that we do now, only without the blot of curse and sin, and in a redeemed way and in a redeemed place? Shall our worship include those activities as well as singing? We shall see next week. <laughs> yeah. But it would be cool. Uh, so this, but I actually want to talk about the singing part now. So next week I'm going to talk about the rest. But I want to talk about the singing part. We had such amazing time of worship here. Where does that come from? Why do we do that? Is music important at all? From Revelations we can see People worshiping, shouting, singing, there's instrumentation going on, so we see it there. Um, is it sort of an optional extra in church? Why music? Why do we worship with music? Is it something that the happy clappies invented? Did we steal it from the world? Did we just want to be like the world, so we made church more attractive by making it? And many of you might have heard these sorts of angles, okay? <clears throat> but in worship, we see that, in Scripture, we see that um, many expressions of worship, okay? You don't, if you just go through the songs, clapping of hands, bowing, kneeling, lifting of hands, shouting, singing, instruments, these are all part of scriptural worship. It's part, and, and it's all through Scripture, we see it as part of corporate worship amongst the people of God, 
You know that in, I had an interesting conversation with my colleague, a Muslim guy, and I wanted to, because I had the suspicion, other religions don't seem to have music. It's not very apparent, but I know I'm not really in those religions, so I don't know. So I asked one Muslim guy, okay, so this is not a study, it's one guy. But he said, <laughs> he confirmed what I thought, which was that, for example, in Islam, there's just about no music in the call it their worship expression to Allah, okay? They've got a drum sometimes that they hit while they recite prayers and recite the Quran and everything, but the strict Muslims actually regard instrumentation as haram. So like you get halal, then you get haram, which is like unclean. So instruments are like a no-no. No one sings. The people maybe chant up and down, something like that. And I suspect maybe in other Eastern religions it's quite similar. I don't know, but... The fact is, in, for, in the scripture, worships, um, sorry, instrumentation, singing, and all the other expressions of worship are a huge part of how we express our devotion and our thanksgiving to God. It's a massive blessing from God. He created it. He created music. It's a special and a powerful creation made by Him. I don't want to get sidetracked with other things now, but okay, it's created by God. God created music, okay? Those of you who've been around long enough might have been exposed to some other regrettable folklore in Christianity about music and its origins and Satan's role in that. Like if you really look into it, it's a bit thin, okay? But we don't have to go into that today. Just read those scriptures for yourself. But we do know God created music, so we can celebrate that, right? It's not like we have to redeem music as an evil creation that somehow we must make it good again. No, no, it is good. It was good. People can use it for bad ends as much as they can use anything else for bad ends, okay? But God created music. It's His delight. It's a special and a powerful creation. Now we can say we're worshiping my heart, and that's amazing. Worship is in your heart. It must start in your heart, but your heart's also in a body. That's why we have these outward expressions. Music and singing was created by God and woven into creation. We see this, and these are such interesting scriptures. In Job chapter 38, verse 4 to 7, it says, Job is ans- uh, God is answering Job after Job's had his, all his questions, and his friends have also all weighed in. And he says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So there we have this imagery of the morning stars, creation singing together. Music is woven into the fabric of God's creation. It, it can and is meant to move you. God designed it to move you. Some of us get nervous when when our emotions get stirred up. But, okay, emotionalism says feelings are what you want and however you get that feeling is fine and that's really what's worship. But emotion is God-given and if emotion gets moved by God, by revelation of him and music which he created, that's what it's there for. Okay. Generally, it's not an issue in charismatic circles like ours, but we must also understand we can also be emotionalistic. We can go into emotionalism in charismatic churches. Um, but God made our emotions and to move them and for him to move us through that. It's part of his expression towards us and our expression towards him. For us to not engage in musical expression whatsoever is actually entirely odd. It's kind of out of keeping with what's going on. It's like everyone comes to a certain, call it a dance party, and this is the dance that's happening and you come there and you do a different dance or you're just not dancing or whatever. Music, the father sings. We know from Zephaniah 3 verse 17 it says God that he will exult over his people with loud shouts and singing. We know that the son sings. We know that Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn before they went to the Mount of Olives. In Ephesians we see the spirit inspiring within believers Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with which to minister to one another. God gave us music to deepen and to develop our relationship with him. How can we keep from it? See what I mean? It's, it's actually odd that 
if we don't, if we refuse to. And I'm not after, much less me, God is not after an outward expression. I want to see that, okay, I know you did clap your hands, no dear, okay, you've bowed before, okay, you've tested all the moves. God is not interested in outward expression for the sake of it. We see truth, it's authenticity, right? That's what God is after, but if if, if we've never been moved by God, it's not about the moves you've done, it's have you been moved? Have you ever been moved in your revelation of God to just go, or just to bow, or just to shout? Okay. Again, it, it's not for the sake of it. It's, is anything happening in there? And is it coming out in your body? And we don't have to all dance the same or dance super wild and and I'm not here trying to shame anyone into a particular move either, but even if not in the congregation, what about in your private time, in your chambers with God, when you have quiet time with Him, like, what about there? I think it was Richard Wade shared at School of Worship, a story I think of Smith Wigglesworth, who said he got up every morning and did a routine of high-speed dancing or something like that. But... <laughs> The congregation is one thing, and, but what about in your own life, when you, it's just you and God, no one's watching, you don't have to be self-conscious, like, are you walking in that freedom to express yourself like that to Him? Your singing doesn't have to be perfect, again, we don't know what Jesus' voice sounds like, we can't assume He was the best singer, He could have sounded very average, you could maybe even have sang better than Him, okay, but there's freedom to express your devotion towards him in that way. I like to think of David. So we know the story quite well, I think most of all, of David leaping before the ark. So the ark of the covenant, which was the presence of God, was returning to Jerusalem. David leapt and danced before this ark, undignifying himself, the king, losing his robes. He was going ape with excitement for the presence of God returning to their city. Now, we know also that his wife despised him. That's very undignified, David, that it's not becoming of a king. Um, and we know that there was barrenness in her heart and in her womb and probably the rest of her, other areas of her life too. She had a real issue with David expressing himself like that. David said, what you think of it is really irrelevant, actually. It's before my God that I worship and I dance like this. And he says, I could, I could go even more hectic and more undignified. But I like to think that, that that's probably not the first time David did that. I can imagine in the temple or in his chambers, his kingly chambers and all the rest, doing the same. So I'm not trying to, no one's watching to see if you're doing it here, okay? But there's freedom to do it and just try it at home then, even if you're still too shy. Yeah, that's fine. God is patient. He's not pushing for, for an outward form. But David rejoiced when the, the, the presence of God that was in the Ark of the Covenant was coming to Jerusalem. How much more the presence of God lives in us. It's like, it's huge. And we have such freedom to, to express, to clap, to sing, to shout, to dance. And we understand it intuitively, eh? Could we justify that kind of inconsistency in a human relationship? Could I rightly say, Sarah, I love you with all my heart? Just believe it, I love you with all my heart. <laughs> when it's your birthday, I still love you. We couldn't do that, or with your friend. If you never felt some affection for your friend, to even, even the most rigid of us, to pat them on the back or something. <laughs> something. That's how God relates with us, okay? And similarly, it is with the relationship with the Spirit. Sometimes, sometimes there can be a lot of rules and recipes for the Spirit, right? How you experience the Spirit and how to see the Spirit's power. And, and many times people get up and they get a revelation and the Spirit works through them and then we immediately think, oh, I must have done something right. I must have done something right. I must have, must because I fasted for two days and then I also did this and I'm, I cleaned out my vessel and I'm 
it's, it's quite simple in many ways. I think the relational uh, way of looking at it makes the most sense. It's the easiest for us to understand, right? There are things that help a relationship and there are things that don't help a relationship. My relationship with my wife dries up, starts to get quenched if I work from seven to eight and come home and watch TV and, and don't talk to her. Okay, That's, that, that will damage that relationship. Conversely, coming home, spending time with her, prioritizing that part of life to prioritize this part of life makes the relationship flourish, okay? So your relationship with the Holy Spirit is not about rules and recipes, it's relationship with a person. Think of it like that. Okay, running out of time, but I wanna just quickly talk about truth. So that's spirit, spirit moving your body and it's genuine expression. We've talked about genuine expression, but what about truth? Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, you worship what you don't know. You don't know what you're worshiping. You're doing a lot of stuff, but you don't. It's not in truth. I want to worship that's in truth. And again, God is looking for worshipers, right? Not worship, worshipers who express worship. <clears throat> Do we know who we are worshiping in life and in the context of today in song? Does our theology about God come from Scripture or from everything else? YouTube sermons, someone else's devotionals, the song, our church songs themselves? It might seem odd to say, but we must know scripture, right? Because that's one of the primary ways where God's revealed his nature. It's, it's there for us, for us to know him. We must know who he is, and to know that we must know scripture. We must, we must seek the scriptures. So who is God? And, and he gives us his spirit to get to know him. He gives us his word. He gives us our community to figure out who he is. But we must, to worship him truly, we must know who he is. And the Psalms are a great help for that because that's records of people worshiping God as they saw him for who he was. And one final thing that I'll say in terms of, of truth is I, th I think sometimes it's important to remove ourselves from the equation if I think about corporate worship. Like worship's not actually about us. Okay? If you look in Revelations, it's like it's all, it's all going that way. Now, as you go through the Psalms, sure enough, pour out your heart before the Lord. There are, there's precedent, there are examples, and we must do this in our worship with God, our interacting with Him. To pour out our hearts, you can seek Him for His faithfulness, seek Him for His provision. But I would argue that we, as a default, we're self-focused. So often our worship becomes like that, whether it's in congregational setting or privately at home, Worship is actually not first and foremost, foremost about our mountains and our valleys, what we want God to do for us. Neither is it, is it about our great boasts about we're gonna, what we're going to do for Him. Okay, We're going to change the world for you, God. We're going to do this for you, God. Or, Lord, I'm really struggling and I believe in you. And again, I'm not dismissing those. Those are in Scripture. But if you read through all of it, the overarching theme is like, it's beholding God. It's, it's extolling His virtues, looking at Him. My favorite of those is Psalm 97. I've read it a couple of times. I won't read it now. But you can spend some time around those psalms. It's, it's, it's cleansing in a way. You realize this whole psalm is just about God, His throne room, and what's happening there, and how He rules the nations, and only, not even one mention of me in there. And that's good. That's good. Okay, we need a balanced concept of, of what worship's about, because when we don't have a higher vision of worship, worship can dry up, can become boring, or even worse, optional. Worship's going on sort of hanging around, doing other stuff, and in the sermon, and now, you're, now you're focused, now you're in on it. It's not meant to be like that. Our hearts are meant to have a vision of God that overflows into expression of song or bowing or silence or whatever it is. But we must know who he is. This is for our worship leaders, but it's also for each of us, right? We all use worship music or consume it, actually, sad to say, consume it. But it's there, we all have worship music and use it for different ways, but I, all I want to say is we must have a vision of God, a, a clear vision of him. And First and foremost, our expectation when we draw near together to worship Him is to worship Him. 
before all the other stuff that we sometimes sing or say. Um, as I said, as a default, we are very self-focused. The last thing we need is more focus on ourselves. Um, so I want to encourage you to do that in this week. Maybe spend some time Psalm 97 or any of the others that you can find or just go through it and see. If you're struggling to express yourself to God in worship, in your quiet time, use a psalm. Just read it, repeat it, or a certain part of it, whatever it is, but just, just, just start to develop that and develop a clear vision of his greatness and his majesty and of his glory. Amen? Amen, that was a long one. Um, I think we, we can close with a song, and I'm just actually going to leave open space. I don't have in particular any ministry questions, but I just want to allow some space for us to reflect on what we've heard, respond to God if there's a response. Um, yeah, just commune with God as, uh, as the band leads us in a, in a song. If you would like prayer, you can definitely come forward and there will be someone to pray with you. But just connect with God this morning. Reach out to Him in faith. And if you're struggling with a connection, as we all do, trying harder isn't always the answer. More faith is the answer. And if you don't have enough faith, say, Lord, increase my faith. Which itself is a faith cry because you're saying, I know that you can give me faith. So already there's something there. There's like the tiniest kernel of faith. So let's just magnify the Lord this morning.